It's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Synergy Connection Show, where we do connect the dots between the physical, emotional, mental, and psychological, or uh, excuse me, spiritual selves. We have four in one. And I often talk to people about the fact that if we don't keep all four of those legs balanced, we get a wobbly table or a wobbly chair. And sometimes that doesn't work as well for us. You know, if 2020 didn't teach us anything more, I think it did teach us the importance of being physically healthy and keeping your immune system strong and your inflammation level low. And I've often told people if they're getting ready to have a physical, you need to ask for two specific tests uh, that will tell you kind of where you stand. One of them is a D as in dog three test, and that is your immune system. And it's a simple blood test. They can add it to the panel that they're going to request anyways for your physical. The other one is a C-reactive protein test. And that tells you the level of inflammation that's in your body. Um, so if you go to my website, www.synergyconnectionradio.com, you're going to see Boomers Forever Young. And they have world-class health products. And the one that I want to mention to you is the one that will help you with both of those things that I just mentioned. And it's called Gladiator Barley. It is a sprout and it is harvested in Canada. It is gluten-free. Um, there are only maybe 1% of the people that might have some reaction to it, but otherwise it is considered a gluten-free product because it is a sprout and not a grain. And it will help rebuild muscle. It will take toxins out of the body and it certainly reduces inflammation. So check out their website, listen to their videos, read some of the testimonials, and you'll have a better idea of how to be proactive in taking care of your health and wellness. Um, I have as my guest today, a new person that has a wonderful background. Um, his name is Keith Long, and he is a Harvard Neiman Foundation Scholar. He's also Florida Bar Certified for Continuing Law Education Credits at Stetson and I guess other schools, right, Keith? Yes. And um, so Keith has been a moderator of Black Lives Matter um, and the Innocence Project. He has a lifetime FBI clearance. I don't think he probably needs it, but he does have it. And uh, he writes for um, books to documentaries. Uh, innovators and people who have a message that they want to get out. And so today we're going to be talking about the Innocence Project. Uh, we'll probably talk about a few other things as well, but you know, the justice system as well as social justice as it exists right now in the United States. Um, and maybe, you know, if you really, if we actually looked at it, probably worldwide, right, Keith? The justice system, what? I, I didn't hear you. I said within the United States, as well as maybe, I think you could actually say that this would be the justice system worldwide, not just here in the United States. Uh, well, I would, I would have to, I would prefer actually to limit it to the U.S. I think um, I take your point that uh, globally, there's, <laughs> you could almost name the countries, and um, uh, there are issues of of justice uh, involved with all of them. Of course, third right. world countries, uh, China, Russia, but even uh, I've studied uh, England and Ireland and uh, some European countries and their system is quite, quite different. Let me put it that way. And it's quite, I would say, subjective in a lot of respects. So yes, I would say now that I, now that I get talking about it, probably uh, globally, justice is a, is a concern. Right. So, you know, when when you think about it, I, I think a lot of people are probably a little bit like I am. I mean, I've certainly heard Black Lives Matter over the last few years. You know, it has been very prominent in our news, uh, social media, every place else. But I don't think as many people maybe would be familiar with this Innocence Project and their mission. And I guess um, it's basically to free 
uh, the number of innocent people who are still incarcerated. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, because I think that's an educational process that we all need. I, I don't even know how you would get involved if you weren't an attorney. And yet there are so many um, that, you know, have broken the law and but maybe they don't deserve to be there as long as they get put away. And how many times is that because of the color of their skin? Right. Yeah, very much so. And of course, the George Floyd case in Minneapolis is still in the news currently, and they're selecting a jury uh, for his trial up there. And he was the black um, uh, arrestee who was killed by a police officer during the arrest, and it was filmed. Right. And uh, there, um, uh, the um, city has just paid off the family uh, for wrongful death. And that happened just at the moment of what they call Verdeer or jury selection. And the judge uh, had to throw off two of the jurors when asked, uh, did that affect their, their opinions of the case? And they said, yeah, of course it does. <laughs> so they were removed. And so that's the justice system. That little vignette is the justice system kind of writ large in the US. Um, uh, African-Americans and other minorities, and recently Asians, have uh, been in the news as targets of violence. Um, black uh, African-Americans are, are very much, uh, have a history of being targeted by police. Uh, and um, that has uh, long-term social consequences for somebody who is targeted um, in many respects. I might, uh, if, uh, if, if, you, uh, if you want to indulge me, uh, to relate what the Innocence Project does for the average person, I'm, uh, I, teach, I teach attorneys uh, the media and how the media impacts the justice system. And I take two cases in my course, and I teach state attorneys, prosecutors, public defenders and criminal defense lawyers. And I take the O.J. Simpson case and the Casey Anthony case. Uh -huh. And I use those to illustrate uh, issues in the justice system, but also uh, the media's involvement in the outcome. Of and as far as the Innocence Project is concerned, one of the defense team lawyers um, was an individual, he was very young at the time, he was a uh, forensics expert, a DNA expert. He was brought in to defend Simpson on that basis and he later founded the Innocence Project. And the reason he did was because he discovered that uh, the justice system and the police departments can manipulate evidence, including DNA, to gain convictions of otherwise innocent people. And so the founding of the Innocence Project actually began with the O.J. Simpson case, who everybody pretty much believes is guilty as sin, and but he was acquitted. So it's an interesting turn, uh, our irony for a lot of people that the uh, defense lawyer who was successful in defending O.J founded the Innocence Project. And what they do, they look for uh, typically DNA evidence, which because it's dispositive, it's, it's very certain uh, when it's, uh, when it's uh, handled properly. And what they confirm, what they can confirm is that a convicted person was not involved at the crime or the blood that they ascribed to the innocent person was not his or hers. So if blood is used to convict a person of, let's say, murder, as O.J. Simpson, that was the issue with him, uh, the only evidence they had was blood. And, um, uh, and so if it turns out that that blood was not his, or in Simpson's case, if it was planted by police, then the Innocence Project is, uses that scientific uh, foundation of blood 
to acquit an otherwise uh, falsely accused person, even if a person is guilty of the crime, if if evidence is manipulated by prosecutor, prosecutors or police to gain a conviction uh, unfairly, the Innocence oh. Project will use that that fact to to overturn the conviction. The idea okay. is the justice how, system is supposed to be fair. Okay, how often is evidence manipulated, do you think? Oh, I think <laughs> I, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's strictly a personal opinion. Uh, I, I, I think the best way to answer the question is that the, uh, the playing field, if, if you're accused of a felony, the playing field is very much slanted in favor of the prosecution. And the easiest way to illustrate that is in federal cases, uh, the conviction rate is approaches 100%. And uh, it's almost like one of those foreign countries that you asked about. If the state convicts them, uh, accuses somebody, that's, it's just a formality then to sentence them. Mm. Uh, in our own federal system, that's basically the case. And so, you know, uh, what the Innocence Project does is, is it takes a case, each case on its own merits, and it finds hundreds and thousands of instances where evidence was false, was used wrongly to convict somebody, which is another way of saying an innocent person was convicted. And they use that DNA or forensic evidence to bring to the court and say, look, this is undeniable, it's scientific. This hair that you said was the defendant's couldn't possibly be his hair. Or the blood found at the scene that you said was evidence that the defendant killed him because it was, let's say, a, a type O and, and he has type O. When you look at the DNA or the scientific evidence, it confirms it excludes him or her. So, so maybe um, years ago, I'm going to say like 25 to 50 years ago, when we didn't have the same science technology that we do today, right. I, it would be so much easier to convict somebody just because you wouldn't be able to refute it. Of course. Wow. Yeah, and, um, and the courts and the just to answer your question kind of in a roundabout way, the courts very much reinforce that model that if you're accused, uh, you know, the police wouldn't accuse you. They're, they're good guys. They're the good guys. And the prosecutors are our friends. And they wouldn't charge somebody if they weren't guilty or if they really didn't seriously believe they're guilty. And so, therefore, the jurors or the judge, but especially jurors, go in there with a bias really against an accused. And the, the people that deal in the justice system uh, will, that is, who aren't prosecutors, uh, will tell you if asked, the system is very much biased against an accused, hmm. both from the bench and from the prosecution. So back, you know, again, um, let's say 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when we had still had so much that was going on racially throughout the United States, if you were the wrong color in the wrong place at the wrong time, you were guilty. Of course, yeah, right, and jurors were making that decision. And, um, and jurors had that same bias. In other words, if this was a black man, let's say a young man, muscular, and he was accused of a crime against a white person, let's say a white woman, uh, and you just looked at him as a juror in those days, that was pretty much it. And it's interesting that uh, the reason I teach the O.J. Simpson case, so the Simpson jurors were minority, mostly minority, and they acquitted Simpson. And the reason they acquitted him based on their own statements was the uh, police department and the justice system in LA at that time 
and they mentioned Rodney King uh, and the policemen who were acquitted of beating him on tape and a lot of other things and the riots. And they said, well, look, you're asking us to convict an iconic black uh, person, uh, an athlete, and we're not going to do it. You need to fix your system before, <laughs> you, before you bring bring black uh, people here, asking black community to convict them. And until you do, we're not going to convict them. Hmm. So uh, that was the message they were sending. And what a lot of people, uh, including lawyers, don't realize is it actually reformed the LAPD and the justice system immediately. The um, Justice Department in Washington, as soon as he was acquitted, like almost the day, uh, they investigated and determined that the LAPD was, in their words, a paramilitary racist organization, and it needed to uh, agree to a consent decree that they were a paramilitary racist organization and they need to be reformed. And the Justice Department is gonna bring people in that are gonna reform it. And the city agreed to that. And the reason uh, the Justice Department said that they got that agreement was because the justice system, which is what we're kind of talking about, the justice system in LA, LA said, my God, we're never gonna convict a black person with a minority jury again if we don't fix the system. Right. So they brought in Bill Bratton, who was the uh, uh, eventually the New York City police ch uh, chief and a reformer. They brought him to, into LA and he reformed it. And the history is that the LA police and the justice system got reformed as a result of the jury acquitting OJ Simpson. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? How how do you see that applying all these years later to, you know, like you said, George Floyd, that case is just now in the headlines and they did the settlement. And so how, going forward, you know, 60 years, let's say 50 years, how is that even, it's still present. I mean, we still have all of these same issues. Right, and it's, it's the Black Lives Matter really is, uh, I had a panel Interesting, I had a, a very radical uh, African-American woman who wants reparations and separation of the races. It's called Uhuru. It's an Uhuru movement in the US. And she leads it. And I had a, um, an African-American woman in New York City who investigated police racist allegations against citizens mm -hmm. on the panel. And then I had a black civil rights attorney. I had those three people on the panel. And uh, basically what they concluded was that the Black Lives Matter movement specifically says that police are abusing African-Americans and killing them uh, unfairly and disproportionately and that Black Lives Matter and that that needs to stop. And so that is kind of their mission and as far as George Floyd is concerned, I watched the tape and uh, it appeared to me uh, and a lot of other people that he was excessively abusive and didn't need to uh, use the kind of force that ultimately killed uh, his uh, arrestee. And that is exactly what Black Lives Matter is saying. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so if, if somebody were to ask me, well, Keith, you depend on police, you know, to protect you, and we all do. Are you going to say that the issue with OJ Simpson and the Los Angeles Police Department and the racism there, and now the George Floyd issue and police issues currently are you saying that's the common denominator that leads to racism? And my answer is yes. 
you want to explain that a little bit further for people that are listening? Yeah, well, uh, so the 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 issue is, uh, so I teach the course, so I know all the details on OJ. Um, and I have two sources. One was one of the Dream Team lawyers, and another was a private investigator who got Mark Furman, who is a police witness against OJ, convicted of perjury um, uh, for denying that he was part of a racist uh, culture. So they, they determined that that was a lie. They had tapes of him uttering racist stuff. So he was thrown off the police force and also convicted of perjury because he was he was the chief accuser. He's the lead detective against OJ. Huh. So in that case, uh, they had OJ's blood. The day he came in uh, to the police station, they asked him for his blood. He said, yeah, go ahead and take it. Have a ball. So they, they uh, processed the blood through the um, uh, forensics department of the police. And the detective said, give me a vial of his blood. You can trust me. And so he put it in his pocket, this detective. And he went out to the crime scene and he went out to O.J. Simpson's house. And at the trial, they used blood found at the crime scene and at the house as evidence against O.J. Simpson. So this forensic lawyer who started the Innocence Project said, oh, I'm like, that's my specialty. And this blood that you're introducing as evidence, that is OJ's, has something that only a lab, a police lab, adds to it to identify it. It's an identifier as police uh, evidence. It's called EDTA. And all of the blood samples that the police used against him had this. Oh. Right. <laughs> so the, the obvious conclusion is that the police took his blood, all right. Yep. Sprinkled it around both the crime scene and his house. Right. And then used to convict him. Right. And and the comment that the officer made was, you can trust me. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's it. And everybody does. And that's why the, if somebody asks me, don't you trust the police? And no, I don't. And I'm not black. And, um, and so, uh, so the question was, well, how does that relate to George Floyd? So that was an instance. And so the jury actually, on the basis of flawed evidence, was right, in my opinion, to acquit him. I mean, you can't go around putting planning evidence and then expect to get a conviction in a, in a justice system. So, in, uh, so, the, so the police were the issue in, the, in that case. Uh, in the George Floyd case, it's the same thing. Uh, as far as the Black Lives Matter movement is concerned. The, the issue is the police. It's the issue of this uh, officer Chauvin, who could have stopped at any time, handcuffed him. He had three other cops standing around ready to help him. That was not an issue. The issue is that he continued to apply lethal force and killed him. And so that's what Black Lives Matter is saying. That is just 50 years ago, we're still dealing with the same police issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even if they have their cameras on, which I think most of them probably do, there's also, you and I both know, there's ways to manipulate footage um, and depending on where you're standing and what you want to be seen or not seen, um, what is the answer to this? I mean, you know, you have a Black Lives Matter movement, but where we stand today isn't too much better than where we stood 50 years ago. It's a little bit, but not a lot. We have social media that tries to slant people one way or the other. We have our television networks that try to slant people one way or the other. But what is ultimately going to be movement in the right direction? Yeah, I think um, it's a uh, it's an awkward answer to have to give, but I think 
the the answer to the question is well how do we solve that how do we stop creating issues for for people who are minorities racially mm -hmm. uh, and even to the point of killing them with our law enforcement resources and to me the answer is kind of obvious it's a uh, it's a cultural issue within the police force uh, the the officers have what they call a, a, a blue code or a wall of silence. And it is a fact that if you're a police officer and you witness a policeman doing something illegal or abusive or over the line, it's not your business to report that. Hmm. Look the other way. Or you have to, or the other policemen in your culture will not back you up. Mm -hmm. uh, they may set you up for uh, discipline problems. Uh, they may make it impossible to work in that culture. Uh, they may see other policemen who, who, let's say, abuse their position are being rewarded in the culture. And at some point, these policemen who would like to do something right are just being funneled out of the system and or constrained so that it's clear that even if you want to do what's right, you're not going to be allowed to. So that's a culture within, to me, the, the police system itself. And there needs to be somebody to come in and clean that up. You know what it reminds me of a little bit? Uh, and I don't know whether you've, you know, share this uh, concept, but fraternities forever, you know, on college campuses have done hazing. And it's led to lives being lost, you know, because of some of the silliness that they get into. But it's very similar, you know, the each fraternity house, they know better, but they do it anyways, until they get caught. And so, you know, it seems to me like it's very similar to this situation is, you know, the, the justice system as we would like to have it knows better. And yet, you know, for a variety of different reasons, um, economic, you know, is, is one of them, I know. Um, because if you get rewarded on the side for looking the other way, I mean, in New York City, that went on forever and a day. And I have relatives that, you know, were down in the, the Bronx and Brooklyn. And, and, you know, that's the way they took care of each other was they looked the other way. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a culture. Um, it's a, something that America, I think, um, if somebody were to ask me, I would say, well, America needs to take a look at itself in the mirror. And we like to think of ourselves as, you know, as, as basically thoroughly fair and and uh, and uh, giving equal opportunity to people and being a land of opportunity and if you work hard you can be successful and don't worry about it right I think at some point we need to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and say that's not the america that a lot of people see or live in and right. uh, it's just like the college fraternity, uh, as stuff happens to, to reform a fraternity when somebody in authority makes it happen. Mm -hmm. and, and usually it's, it's whoever is in charge of like your college itself, the, you know, the dean or the president of the college or somebody who says, no, we cannot allow this to continue any longer. And, you know, these particular fraternities are now closed you know i mean it might take something as severe as that just to right. say you know you can't even exist anymore um i think we've seen within well let's just look at sports you know football as a prime example and uh, we have different uh, behaviors let's say within our uh, sporting communities and you know now they are finding people that um, you know, go outside of what would be considered fair, a fair system. You know, between spouses, between partners, on the field. You know, what is and there have been changes. 
over the last say 25 years, you know, some of the behavior that was allowed on a football field in the past with helmet against helmet now carries a very serious fine. And yet it still happens. You know, they try to get by with it and it still happens. Um, so you see little inroads of where they're trying to make changes for sure. And yet, again, you know, on national TV, there's probably not a single night that goes by that there isn't something that is happening and being shown to the public as changes need to happen. That's true. And of course, this is Women's History Month. And uh, I talk to, uh, when I talk to women <clears throat> about social issues, they say it's, it's hard to imagine that my mother couldn't uh, get a mortgage. She couldn't get a career because men basically uh, they had the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, they definitely didn't get paid equal and they were harassed and then everybody hushed up about it. Even today, what uh, the governor of New York is being accused of and Harvey Weinstein and all this stuff's going on even today. And the only reason we hear about it is because we live in a culture that's, that talks about this stuff. And you can imagine living in a culture in the 50s or the 80s even, when the, um, when the establishment had rules that you don't talk about that. Exactly, something, yeah. If, if your teenage daughter gets pregnant, the family sometimes would send her to another city. Oh, absolutely. Adoptions uh, less than 50 years ago. They were sent to another state, oftentimes to a convent where the baby was born and it was then placed, you know, with Catholic charities. Um, so, I mean, that has not been that long ago and there were closed records, you know, where they weren't able to go find out who their parents were. Um, I, I have been watching uh, the, the Crown and uh, do you remember Downton Abbey when it was on? Okay. Mm -hmm. But I mean, women were expected. I mean, the queen was different uh, in Downton Abbey, you know, the royalty that was there. Um, but women were expected to get married by the time they were at least 21. And right. they took on their husband's point of view. They did not have a point of view about anything. Right. You know, they controlled very little except within the household and at that, it, it still was subject to whatever, you know, the male counterpart, you know, had to say. And so, and that's only been, you know, like 100 years ago, 150 years ago. So, I mean, it's amazing how far we have come in a fairly short period of time when you look at history. But at the same time, you know, generation after generation is being impacted. And, you know, more recently, the uh, black graves that have been surfacing in places, you know, because there's excavation going on and, oh my goodness, what do we have here? You right. know, so it, it's astonishing um, how much and how many people looked the other way. They didn't want to be involved. And it seems like we now at least have a number of individuals who are willing to be visible and to speak out. True. And it's very difficult, though. And a lot of them are younger people uh, who don't want to uh, perpetuate that generational. So the World War II generation is, is the greatest generation. In a lot of respects, they, uh, they, were, they were very admirable. But in one respect, they didn't talk about a lot of things. No. And part of that was they didn't talk about things like we're talking about. And that was not a good thing, uh, in my opinion, uh, of that generation. And uh, so the younger generation, especially women, <clears throat> uh, are not perpetuating that. And they are beginning to come forward and, uh, and in an effort to change it, and also for other women, which is quite uh, heroic. Uh-huh. And uh, so I watched the uh, 1999 women's soccer team. They were tremendously inspirational. And it was, to me, what inspired me about them was that they were a team and they were really a, a, 
fighting to get recognized as an equal. As it turns out, they actually gain more viewers and more appreciation than the men's team, but they don't get paid as much still. No, <laughs> that's true. So it's, it's, it's the men, it's, so it's the men's, you know, men were controlling all that and it wasn't by accident that men got more money and women were held back. And so that's one of the things that has to change. Mm. I, uh, I often chuckle when, because I remember watching um, All in the Family mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that whole concept of Archie coming home and Edith making sure that his dinner was on the table the minute he walked in the door. And, it was so you know, hilarious that, that <laughs> I love watching that. Um, you know, and, and Archie and Meathead and the whole, you know, nine yards there. But, I, you know, that's, again, that's not been that long ago. I, I don't know when that show stopped being shown, but I'm, I'm going to say, what, 35 years ago at the most, maybe 30. Sure. So um, I'd have to look that up. But, I mean, we watched those kind of shows and, and we thought it was funny, you know, yeah. it was, it was humorous. Um, when I was little, well, not maybe that little, but I was, you know, pretty young still and uh, Leave it to Beaver and, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of shows. I mean, where it showed the mom stayed home and raised the kids and the dad went off and had the two martini lunches and, you know, right. came home and talked about, you know, what it was like out there, you know, in the big world. We, now, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, I'm just saying that, you know, we're just so different today because today, you know, we look at equality, I think, a lot more between husband and wife um, and having, you know, a sharing of raising of the children and of household duties uh, because we have two working families. And, you know, if families are lucky enough to have husband and wife still together at home. Um, and not, you know, a mom raising the kids. And yet in black families, it was almost always the mother and the grandmother that raised the children. You were lucky to have, you know, right. a dad at home or not incarcerated or not, you know, dead. Right. It's interesting. Uh, my, my attitude changed uh, about race at some point. And uh, one of the changes I still remember is that I realized at some point that, generally speaking, racism only exists in a, in a white person. Uh, I, I talk to black people, and no matter what their situation is, I don't see racism in a black person, ever. Uh, despite, regardless, you know, they could be working on a garbage truck or, you know, being rejected for this and that. Uh, I see racism only from a white person, and also the the black men who abandoned their families uh, and uh, were not monogamous. They were also black men who were being arrested by police, establishing a record, going to an employer, and the employer saying, "Oh, do you have a record? Yeah, well, we're not hiring." Oh, yes. And so this whole system is, uh, it seems like really was designing an outcome of broken families. And so oh, then they sell drugs because that's what the neighbors do. It's not part of the system. It's like a cryptocurrency before crypto came along. In a certain sense, I think that's true for uh, minorities. Uh -huh. you know, if you're gonna exclude me, if you're not going to let me be part of the system and you're going to have your police make money off me by fining me for loitering and uh, uh, like the Missouri um, Brown in Missouri uh, was doing or selling Lucy cigarettes, two or three cigarettes to make some money outside of a store and they killed him. And I mean, at some point uh, I say to myself, wow, I mean, what else are they going to do? So the guys in the streets say we got a we got a way to make money outside of the system, and it's marijuana or is it cocaine or it's this and that. And guess what? We can make a lot of money that way. And I'm thinking, what did you expect of the system? Right. Right. And, yeah. and I worked in the schools for quite a while, 
and um, you know, black children, Hispanic children, you know, they were terrified that they were going to get caught for something. Yeah, of course. And and so you know, their whole lives were focused on how do I become invisible? How do I you know how do I get ahead? You know, what do I do? And most of them didn't get in trouble in the schools that much. Um, they might not be doing their homework, you know, but they were looking towards athletics as the way that they were going to make their mark, whether it was baseball, football, basketball, you know, but something with athleticism. Um, and it typically was not academics, but they worried about, you know, were they going to be picked up for lottering? Were they going to be picked up for, um, you know, be, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Right. Yeah, very true. And if that happens with the young ones, you know, they become teenagers that then do get caught or young men that do get caught. And sometimes, you know, they are innocent. Yeah, and psychologically, you're a psychologist, but I would guess that if a individual, especially a young person at any age, pre-adult, gets messages from the system and the institutions around him or her, that we're going to exclude you, uh, no matter basically what you do, the outcome is going to be to exclude you. That kind of reads a, uh, an unhealthy psychological identity and psychological uh, relationship model. It's almost like uh, the system is designed to, to perpetuate uh, a failure of the country as a whole, but also minorities in particular. Right, right. You know, and, and then, you know, how do they have a chance, I guess, to teach that there is upward mobility if you work hard? You know, if you, you know, get an education, if you do, I mean, there's a lot of ifs for everybody. Right. It doesn't make any difference what race you are. Uh, because you could be Caucasian and, you know, stay home and play video games all day. And that's not going to usually get you very far. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's sad when, you know, it's funny. Um, I worked in one school district in particular for quite a while that was heavily Hispanic. And, you know, they sent what little bit of money they had extra home to Mexico to bring right their families over and they were all seen as quiet, hardworking, you know, they, they weren't getting into trouble because their objective was to find a better life. Um, Native Americans, when I was in Wisconsin, I worked with the Menominees and the Oneida tribes in particular, you know, they each had a separate kind of identity. So the Menominees were seen at that particular time one way and the Uniteds were seen another way. Um, they both had casinos. They both had, you know, a lot of gaming and gambling and stuff that went on, but they were, be, because of their personality traits, if you will, they were just viewed differently in Northeast Wisconsin by the community, which I found very fascinating. And yet they yep. were all Native American. Yeah. So we do have prejudice and biases and judgments that we make all the time against one another. And I don't know how exactly people are going to stop doing that. You know, well, I think uh, generationally, it'll change. I think um, young people are, um, are changing that attitude very much so, and very definitively. And um, uh, I talked to a lot of young women and older women who have young children. And uh, a question I ask, I, <laughs> I tend to be kind of, uh, what would I say, provocative. And so I will ask them, either the young girl or the mother, um, does, does, it, does your daughter have a different worldview than you? And like, it's not even hesitating. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. and, and the daughter says it, yeah, of course I do. And the mother says it too. And um, so that's how things change. And um, uh, Jefferson said that each generation deserves the right to uh, create its own uh, uh, world. And, uh, and he meant also its own uh, 
uh, kind of system. And I, I tend to like that. Uh, I think disruption is a is kind of a necessary thing, and um, good things happen. Is there, in your opinion, and I, I think, you know, we'll end up probably closing with this concept, but in terms of social media, in terms of our, our television broadcasting and things of that nature, because we don't, people don't read newspapers anymore. They go on their phones and they, you know, they right. get the news that way. Um, is there a way... I know you and I talked before we started recording the show, but is there a way that this part of uh, disseminating the news can be done in a way that isn't as biased as it is? It's like we have swung from one, uh, PBS is one of the few stations that I see that kind of gives more factual news rather than a heavy dose of bias one way or the other. So what do you see as, as a way that maybe 10 years from now, we might have news that is actually relevant, but not biased? <laughs> That's a very ambitious hope. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> so I report on the news and uh, I would say the starting point to answer that question for me is to understand, is not to deny basically what we're talking about when we talk about a news uh, source. Mm -hmm. And what, what they all are uh, is a, a for-profit business model. Right. And they use a, uh, a, a concept called confirmation bias mm -hmm. to maximize the profits of their business model. So what that means is Fox and Friends is Fox and Friends for a reason. They want people to feel like uh, the news that they're hearing is, is from a friend. And that's what Fox wants to capture an audience and collect the revenues from the sponsors. The same is true with uh, uh, CNN or MSNBC, the, the legacy networks. The legacy networks found out that news could make money and Walter Cronkite got retired. And, um, and so what happens is you get a, an audience capture model based on revenue and whatever doesn't attract or interest your audience gets excluded from the news. Hmm. And so, so sensationalism sells, in other words. It doesn't even have to be sensationalism. It can, it can be a point of view. So if I have uh, people listen to Rachel Maddow, uh, are not listening to her to hear uh, what they might hear from Hannity. So to me, those are quite obvious divisions. And that's not by accident. Uh, those people our, our, our money funnels for NBC and for Fox, and they don't say a word, either one of them, that the employers don't want them to say, and they gauge what they say based on audience capture, mm -hmm. 100%. So what I do, and I have to catch myself, what I have to remind myself, <coughs> news journalists are not my friend, they are uh, advocates for the point of view that their bosses and employers tell them to be. And they don't step away from that one bit. If they did, they wouldn't be on the air. So their job is what motivates them? Uh, well, their, yeah, their job, yeah. What mo well, their job is, is to follow the model that their employers say will capture the audience that they want to capture. Right. So if you do it correctly, you stay employed. If you don't, bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's not missed on them. It doesn't take long to, to, to realize that. When you're no, working. I mean, most of them are being paid, you know, seven figures. So yeah. uh, they don't want to lose, you know, what they have. Um, and, and that's not too different than probably most 
corporate Americans, you know, that are in some sort of corporate responsibility. You represent the employer or else you're gone. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it has been such fun having you as part of the show. Um, I'm going to look forward to doing uh, many other shows with you. I think one of the ones we want to talk about possibly the next time is uh, Casey Anthony, right? Sure. I'm doing and, a doc documentary. Uh, back when I get off the air here, I'm talk talking to my director and uh, she lives in New Hampshire. Uh, for a 10-part documentary on Casey Anthony, and there's a whole new uh, portfolio of information about the case. That has to be totally fascinating. And you've been involved in it for how long now? From the beginning. I published uh, for Harvard uh, immediately after the trial, and I've been uh, working on the documentary and a book ever since. Wow, that should be so. I definitely have to have you autograph a copy for me. Oh, sure. Be happy to. <laughs> okay. Uh, Keith, let people know, please, how to get hold of you if they would like to engage your services. If they can go on LinkedIn, uh, I think just do, if they type in my name, um, they'll, I'll come right up and I'll connect with them. It's very easy. That's the simplest way. Okay. And um, you could help them with writing. You can help them with uh, documentaries, uh, putting things together, obviously. What are a few other things you might be able to offer assistance in? Sure. Well, I, I, I use uh, professionals uh, who want to get any kind of a message out uh, that has a particular outcome in mind. And I help them strategically uh, edit that and publish it so that it actually achieves the outcome that they want. That can be a book or um, uh, anything, really. Hmm. Audiobooks are very popular. I am sure that there are a lot of people that uh, could benefit by talking to you. I enjoy it. I would look forward to it. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the show today. Tune in uh, next week and go out there and make this your very, very best life. Boomers Forever Young is really making a name for themselves as an exciting nutritional company with products that really work. People from all over the country are starting to take notice. Their whole person approach to health and wellness, combined with their unique array of powerful natural health products, are setting them apart from all the other companies in the nutrition industry. Their customers love the one-on-one -on -one free consultations and the results they experience. Sound a little too good to be true? Then go online to boomerboost.com today and sign up for a free consultation with a product specialist or just give us a call at 1-800-861-4609. Again, that's boomerboost.com or call 1-800-861-4609 to join the thousands already experiencing the benefits of Boomers Forever Young products.